This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing, start assessing. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. Today, guys, the question and topic stems from um, some recent posts I've been reading, some research articles, and I think it'd be a good thing to share because it's something that I was often misunderstood about. Um, again, I don't know all the details to the furthest extent. I'm not an endocrinologist, so when I dive into this topic, obviously there's certain areas that I'm lacking in, but this is my understanding of it. So talking a little bit about cortisol. And so cortisol is often accused as being the bad guy. Cortisol is, oh, it's catabolic. It breaks down your muscles. When you have cortisol present um, all the time, you know, we have all these negative effects that take place. And yes, but the caveat is when it's present all the time and when it's excessively high, but also there's problems excessively low. So talk about cortisol first and foremost. It follows a diurnal pattern. So during the day when you wake up, it should be highest. When you go to bed, it should be lowest. A typical cortisol sampling takes place over five periods over a day, or sorry, five you know, different times during a day. And it looks at within a certain bandwidth if you're within that uh, spectrum. And so you can have high cortisol, you can have low cortisol, common, um, not symptoms, but um, it might be symptoms of the right word use. To someone who has like uh, cortisol issues might be like, you know, wired but tired. They have trouble getting out of bed. Um, all these things are related to certain aspects of maybe an imbalance, um, you know, system where cortisol is either too high or too low. But we're going to talk about cortisol in this extent to exercise and why it's present when we are exercising and why it's not necessarily the bad guy that's always made out to be. So cortisol, when we, when we exercise, we have, you know, metabolic activity to take place. And reactive oxygen species are created in the muscles and um, all these other signaling pathways. And one of the things that happen is, you know, IL-6 is created. Um, and IL-6 can lead to stimulating of cortisol. And what cortisol does is actually does um, a good thing. It, it tells the liver, hey, we need some, it's called gluconeogenesis. It says, hey, we need some more blood glucose in the area because we're under, you know, stress. We're under, not attack, but under, you know, a need, a demand to actually get some work done. And so cortisol goes to the liver and says, hey, man, make some glucose. Our muscles need some more glucose. We need to get rolling here. We need to have the body um, needs to have some energy to perform the activity. And so cortisol has this process where it's present during the workout. And when it's, um, again, sympathetic activation typically can lead to this as well. You have that cortisol response, help mobilize energies, produce energy, make glucose. So the muscles have fuel to actually partake in an activity. Because you think about this in terms of a stressor externally, like say, you know, um, a mountain lion trying to come get you, you want to have that response. You want to have glucose readily available for the muscles to be utilized. However, um, again, it's not necessarily a bad guy. We, we say, oh, cortisol is this bad thing to have. Well, no, it's actually serves a very important purpose um, in regards to, you know, yeah, our body getting the fuel that it needs to perform the work. And so what happens is the cortisol, right, goes to the liver. It says, hey, liver, make more glucose. Liver makes more glucose. And you continue to exercise. And maybe there's a response where we have cortisol, again, continuing to um, provide our body with the signaling that it needs. 
The issue I think people commonly misinterpret uh, is that it's the excessive amount of cortisol at times when it's not necessarily needed and a dysregulation of that feedback feed forward pathway that causes some issues. And so in the medical world, they, uh, um, you know, endocrinologists dive into the relationship of cortisol uh, to testosterone as also cortisol DHEA. Um, and there's certain processes and minutiae within there that looks at whether or not um, that cortisol is being produce, produced in an effective manner, whether it's not it's being um, actually present for the reason that it should be, or if that feedback feed forward loop has been dysregulated. And it's that dysregulation of the feedback feed forward loop, which they typically read in some articles with testosterone cortisol ratios, they look at from a catabolic to anabolic balance. And so all the papers you might read, it has um, you know, testosterone and cortisol, and that under that assumption, testosterone is always anabolic, cortisol is always catabolic and negative. But again, that's not always the case because cortisol does play a very important role for certain um, you know, physiological processes that need to take place in order for our, exor- for our muscles to perform the exercise that we are taking them through. And so um, I, I, this, this question, again, stems from someone saying, oh, cortisol's bad. And it's like, well, it's not necessarily bad, right? It's all about context, context, context. Having the understanding of how these pathways all interact with each other is what's more important and whether or not if that cortisol isn't necessarily, you know, high cortisol, well, low cortisol is bad too, right? You don't want excessively high, like, you know, DHT, which is dihydroxy testosterone. I think I said that correctly, which is, um, responsible for acne and male balding as well. So, you know, having high DHT is obviously a bad thing and probably having low DHT is a bad thing. When we talk about endocrinology, we talk about balance of systems. Balance is the key word itself. How do we balance the system? And so, Things that balance the system are things like proper nutrition helps give you the proper, um, you know, nutrients and certain um, uh, the nutrients. Maybe isn't the best word for that, but certain raw materials and building blocks to take care of some of the compounds that your body needs. Just like sleep helps restoration, reducing your anxiety, the stressful impacts that you have will reduce the amount of, you know, sympathetic activation and possibly excessive cortisol excretion. But again, it's all in the spectrum of many different things at once. So you can't just say cortisol is a bad guy. Our body isn't, you know, uh, it's not that one-sided. It's much more about how that cortisol is present in regards to the body, um, how it is being measured too, right? Is it morning cortisol? Is it post-exercise cortisol? Is it your daily pattern of cortisol? Um, you know, five times taken through the day and with, you know, taking it once, are you taking it once a week, are you taking it once a month? All these things play a role when we start looking at that kind of stuff. And so, again, whenever time we look at hormones, hormones are extremely complicated. They are something I try learning about. They're something I'm not the most versed in. I'll be first to admit that. But they are something that um, they're multifaceted, right? It's an interconnected, complex system which, which hormones interact with our body. And so having the reductious approach of saying this is bad or this is good or vice versa or um, a one-to-one kind of linear mindset kind of leaves you a little bit lacking, which is where um, I think sometimes the ease of interpretation of someone's information really isn't there because it is very difficult to understand naturally and you know, by nature it's a complex topic. So again, I appreciate you guys asking these kind of questions. It's a good topic to dive into. I think important, again, you can understand some of the physiological processes of why cortisol is being stimulated. You can better understand contextually why 
you know, when it's present for certain reasons, it might be a good thing. And when it's excessively present or low, it might be a bad thing. And, you know, what does low mean? What does high mean? Are there certain pathways and feed forward feedback systems that are um, issues, right? Excessively high sometimes maybe is a symptom commonly associated with um, sort of some sort of a overtrain, but also excessively low is as well. And for different reasons, and maybe it's the duration of overtraining and how you define overtraining and um, what processes are leading to that overtrain all play a role as well. All right, what's up, guys? Today, the topic is a little bit about um, applying a business mindset to the strength and conditioning world. And what I mean by that, I don't mean business from a monetary standpoint. I mean business from a research and development standpoint. And so what I'm kind of talking about here, it's thinking like a sports scientist. I totally steal that idea from Bill Schmarzer, who says thinking like a data scientist. Well, let's start thinking like a sports scientist. Even better, let's start thinking like someone who's in the business world. And what I mean by that is when you look at the business world, they have to understand the cohort they're dealing with, right? They have to understand their product and to understand how the people that they're selling the product to respond to it. And to have feedback from those people to better, make a better product. And they base that on sales, customer feedback, retention, and all this other stuff. Now, let's think about that from a sports science standpoint. Let's think about how we can begin to apply an agile model to the strength conditioning side. So we have a hypothesis. We think, you know, I think doing a strength block is going to make my guys jump higher. Wonderful. Cool. You have your hypothesis. Now you have your cohort, you know, just like the business people who market to people who are interested in their product, your cohort, you know, obviously isn't marketing, but it's the athletes you work with. And then you apply a model or that high, sorry, a hypothesis. And you say, okay, I think squatting is going to help my cohort jump higher. You test that hypothesis and you get feedback on it. And now you begin to develop what in the business world they call IP, intellectual property, right? And now you have that property yourself, but it's from a strength conditioning standpoint. You begin to understand which specific means and methods make sense for the individuals that you're working with based on, that's called a product market fit in the business world, right? But it's not a product market fit here. We're talking about a stimulus cohort fit, right? Does that stimulus being the strength conditioning program applying to someone fit for that individual. And now when you start to develop IP around it, you have intellectual property as to how you think, not you think, but you have evidence to suggest that these methods are best fit for these individuals that you're working with based on the certain context in which you're training people in. And now that allows you, it's a very powerful tool now because you have a unique objective identification of how to make athletes better. Now, whether we're talking about that gives you an edge to beat your opponents whether that's something you can monetize and sell, you know, this is your proprietary method, means and methods of screening and understanding. But you have this essentially an R&D, a research and development group, and an agile model around strength and conditioning. And now you begin to set up smaller and smaller hypothesis models where you get these iterative feedback loops where you begin to develop better and better IP. And so the business world uses this all the time. They use this to help develop a startup. That's how companies work. This is how innovation works. This is how you begin to develop things that um, develop new markets, things that disruptive technology, entities, sorry, companies that um, really make um, a big impact, right? The people who are the big movers out there are people who also have these small innovative startups inside the company itself. And now when you start looking at that from a strength conditioning model, you sort of say, okay, here's my big company, my team, my school that I work for, the facility that I work for, but how can I have small innovative you know, um, learning cells, essentially not cells, but in physiology, but cells like these entities that work together to have small 
um, iterative, you know, command centers that are constantly learning information so I can begin to develop the best practices for my individual. And now what we can do is you can apply research and say, I think this is going to work best based on the research suggesting this. But now I also have evidence from another world as well, evidence from my own data collection based on the hypothesis and testing model that I applied to get the most information out of the possible. And so now you begin to look at and understand, I think based on the evidence I've collected, the evidence suggests that doing, you know, a single leg squat or you know, a Bulgarian split squat is most effective at increasing X, Y, or Z, or maybe reducing the likelihood of X, Y, or Z. And you can begin to apply these models based on these small kind of feedback cycles. Now, the issue is that when we look at it from a strength conditioning side, we don't associate business and strength conditioning, but these are uniform models about how the you know things work. Right? When we're talking about living organism feedback loops, we talk about businesses and how they begin to develop, you know, proprietary ways to um you know, sell you something. You look at animals, they don't develop proprietary ways, but they have adaptive features that help them survive in the environment that they're in. So let's make our strength conditioning model living organism to provide us with more and more information to get a better understanding. Because ultimately, if we only rely on individuals of external sources for that you know, piece of information that we're getting, then we might be leaving something behind on the table. You might be leaving behind or you might be hanging your hat on someone else's ability to develop, you know, research and develop an IP, quote unquote. Which kind of what we see that here, and again, it's a step back. I apologize if I'm getting going here. But like this is what we see in the strength and conditioning research world. We say, oh, this is research, and we take that and we then use it to our application, uh, which is you know working with the athletes. Well, how can we develop our own internal research? How can we develop our own models? What happens is in the academic sense, businesses don't have like a library to go read for research. There's not a library saying these people you know respond best to X, Y, and Z based on this hypothesis. So businesses have to develop their own internal research. Strength condition, we're lucky. We have research papers. We have other entities performing research. And so not that we get lazy. That's a bad word to use. But we always rely on that research itself. How can we develop an internal learning cell, right, become this uh, node of learning within our own department that we begin to apply certain models and interventions and hypotheses to begin to understand what's best for our you know, individual and how do we track that in a simple and effective manner? So if you look at like A-B split test models and marketing and stuff, these are done very simplistically, right? They're not complex situations where they're trying to dive out a thousand different things. They test one at a time. They slowly break it down to better understand, to get a, you know, again, keyword, better understanding of what's going to work best. Now we apply that same model to the strength conditioning world. You have certain hypothesis environments where you can set up a very simple mannered uh, hypothesis or test. You know, I think a strength block is going to improve X, Y, and Z. You track that indicator of uh, what you deem is success based on the hypothesis. You apply that model and then you track it over time. So you begin to understand certain, you know, the minutia, the, this very specific aspects that are considered like IP in the business world, but essentially it's like research and development for strength conditioning. And now you begin to own that material for yourself, which you accumulate that over time, over time, over time, you get a slight edge. And that can be, again, whether you're a businessman, whether you're a sport, you know, working in the sports setting with teams, that can be something that you guys can use, um, as a means of, you know, uh, making training more effective. Maybe it's a means that you begin to monetize if you're in the private sector, and that's how you develop certain methods and methodologies to begin to be shared but at a, you know, distribution sense from a money standpoint. But again, there's a whole different, there's tons of things that you can do, but as long as you have that environment set up, which we so often don't have in the strength conditioning world, then we're falling short at times. And so that's where you can see a lot of these parallels between the business world, even evolution, um, a lot of the, uh, some of the, even like ecosystems and how, 
that all can be in parallel to strength conditioning, how we can use some of that information when I talk about, you know, businesses to give next to understanding. It's the hypothesis model. It's the research and development. When I talk about ecosystems, it talks about how, you know, um, you have things that adapt and things that become most effective within that context and that environment. And so we talk about training methods. Maybe that training method is most effective in that context and environment. So that quote unquote ecosystem is the context and that, you know, training applications based on that, you know, ecosystem itself. But then you take the models of the business situation to actually test that um, setup. And so when I talk about these parallels between the ecosystems and talk about parallels between businesses, it's not just big words, there's actual application behind it because there's um, legitimate, uh, you know, common threads between them all. And I really encourage anyone listening to this to go check out, expand in what we read. Don't just read strength conditioning, read business books, read um, books from other individuals who are not other individuals, but other industries, which are highly competitive in a way that's a little different than ours because you can get quite a bit out of it. All right, what's up, guys? Today, the topic is going to be the difference between what is a complex system and what is a complicated system. So a complicated system is a system that consists of many different parts, but when each part is taken out in isolation, it can be identified and its role within the system can be easily understood. An example of this would be like a car engine, where together all the pieces end up, you know, making an engine, but... When you take, let's say, a piston breaks, you can take out a piston and put a new one in and understand in isolation how a broken piston is going to affect the rest of the car. That is a complicated system. A complex system is very different. A complex system is where you cannot understand in isolation how each part is interconnected with one another. So an example of this is like the weather or um, the human body, right? We can't quantify specifically all the exact details of how all of these inner working, um, interconnected parts are going to influence one another. A very reductionist approach is looking at the human body and saying that it is a complicated system. So this is saying, oh, if we, um, you know, isolate muscle fibers or specific joints, we can predict the end product or end outcome of an individual. Now we cannot, we, we can kind of, or I say this loosely, loosely, we can somewhat infer what the outcome might be, but we cannot predict to the exact precision of being 100% correct, unlike how we can predict how a broken piston is going to affect a car. So in a complex system, we have what are called interconnected webs or and you know it's it's a network essentially where we have all these different entities or nodes or pillars that are connected to one another in a very very small ripple in a pillar that might not seem like much actually can result in a large outcome or disturbance or a totally different product an example of this is actually when you look at weather and so the idea in term butterfly effect, but wow, butterfly effect, comes from um, an individual's last name is Lorenz, Lorenz, L-O-R-E-N, L-O-R-E-N-Z, what is that name? Spell it. Lorenz, 
Ah, I spelled that correctly. L-O-R-E-N-Z. I had to take a peek at my notes really quick. Um, yeah, Lorenz. And what he was actually working on and doing was trying to predict the weather based on a set of you know schematics or information he had. And what he actually ended up doing was he printed out the information and put it back in the computer. So for, let me take a step back. He ran a, um, a predictive sequence and he got an output. And so he was like, okay, well, I'm going to take those same numbers. I'm going to put them back in the system and see if I get the same output. And what he did was he ended up taking it out and putting it back in. But when he printed it out, I believe the story goes that the number decimal only rounded to the thousandth place. And so it actually rounded the decimals. And what happens is he ran it back in the system and it tried predicting it again and it gave a totally different you know, outcome. And what happens is small, small, small changes or differences between individual um, numbers in this case for the weather prediction, maybe it's system functioning in the human body, can lead to a drastically different outcome. And so this is where the difference between a complicated and a complex system comes into play. A complex one is definitely um, much more like the weather and ecosystem, while a complicated one is easy to refer to as an engine or something with a lot of moving parts like an assembly line, but can be easily understood or each part can be easily understood in the role that it plays. So this helps explain why when we look at performance, health optimization, wellness, all these are complex processes that require a, you know, a very deeply interconnected web of the human body, of the you know, human body in terms of the mechanical properties, prop, prop, properties, the properties, also the you know psychological properties, and the environment that we're in. All these influences play a role into the output that we get. And so a complex system cannot be predicted unless every single variable in the complex system is understood at that given instantaneous moment, which obviously it cannot be. And so this is where we need to appreciate what complexity is and how as practitioners, as individuals that want to become better at what we are, you know, our, our goals, that there's always an aspect that we need to appreciate in more detail outside of the reductionist approach of a complicated system. Hopefully that makes sense, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, sorry for stumbling through some of the words. Or, um, I don't know. It's a little late here. So uh, try to keep my mind right as I go through this. And I uh, appreciate you guys. And I uh, hope you enjoyed. What's up, guys? Today I'm going to be talking about neuromechanical coupling, injuries, and sleep, and how they all fit together. So first and foremost, what is neuromechanical coupling? In short, neuromechanical coupling is how your brain talks to your body. That's a very superficial level explanation, but it really sums it all up. Neuromechanical coupling, right, is how our body, through nervous, so through neurological properties, our nervous system, orchestrates movement and in turn causes our muscles to move in a certain way that we desire them to. So a motor pattern stemming from our central nervous system. And in return, our muscles and joints send back neurological impulses to the central nervous system that allow us to understand where we are in space. And you have this feed forward feedback system, which is neuromechanically coupled. So neurologically, 
your body is all connected. Your limbs are not going to move without a neurological impulse. And so now we have movement patterns, which are, you know, multiple joints moving in space over a given period of time. Our body has to orchestrate these movements. And when our body is not neuromechanically coupled in the most optimal, biomechanically efficient, safe and favorable way that we normally do a movement, then we run the risk of having an increase in injury. And so when we look at sleep, for example, people go, oh, you know, sleep, and there's a lot of studies on this too, by the way, sleep increases our risk for injury. Yes, right, and people go, oh, it's because you're tired. Well, what does tired mean, right? My opinion on that is that there's most likely going to be a perturbation in our neuromechanical system of the human body. And so what I mean by that is when we look at sleep studies, we see that there are increases sorry, decreases in reaction time, decreases in mental acuity, decreases in awareness and our ability to focus. And what this leads to is a, most likely a decrease in our, it's indicating by the way, a decrease in our neuromechanical abilities, how well our nervous system is processing. That's going to influence how you're going to orchestrate a movement, right? If I'm neuromechanically decoupled, right, that system's perturbed, we have an increase in risk, an increased risk of injury. And if you want to reference studies that are great examples of that, look at some concussion studies. They've shown that when people have a concussion, right, we know a concussion perturbs the central nervous system and the nervous system in general, and it forces the body to reorganize in a new manner. There's a study looking at how the lower body and lower extremities produce vertical stiffness. And post-concussion, they actually change the way in which the joints are producing lower extremity stiffness. We've seen that post-concussion, you're at an increased risk for injury, right? Concussions are multidimensional. And so what happens when you get hit, you have neuromechanical perturbation, right? The way your motor pattern is going to fire might slightly be different or perturbed. So your body has to figure out a new way, a new way to neuromechanically couple this movement system in order to perform the action. And so when we look at things like sleep, we look at things like concussion or thing, anything that perturbs our neuromuscular system, that is where we are at an increase of risk for injury. And so looking at our body through the lens of neuromechanics, right, how our system talks to our body, you begin to see how different variables can affect the same system, whether we're talking about a concussion, whether we're talking about how we introduce motor patterns and movement and injury, right? If you get an injury, your body has to now change the way we neuromechanically move in order to get around that injury. Say you have a sprained ankle on the right, you know, right ankle. Your body has to find a way to get you from point A to point B. So maybe it's gonna rely on less ankle dorsiflexion because the thing is swollen, and it's gonna maybe somehow compensate through the hips, through the knee, maybe through the lumbar, right? And so now what's happening is our body wants to get us from point A to point B. It knows we have to walk to do so. So it's gonna say, okay, go from point A to point B, find a way to walk again, and it's gonna neuromechanically alter the pattern in which we have to do that. Now, when you go through the rehabilitation process, you're gonna have, you know, you're going to attempt to retrain this, but you might in increase the strength, the integrity of the tissue again, but this system is now neuromechanically coupled in a way that's less efficient than it would be otherwise. So this is where introduction of different kind of environmental stimuli to challenge the neuromuscular system and the ability to couple through different motor patterns 
can be used in rehabilitation or quote unquote prehab to stress the system to get a positive adaptation to reduce the likelihood of injury. And so when you're looking at a lot of these studies, again, look at it from a neuromechanical standpoint. How is the nervous system influencing the way our body functions? And ultimately, everything we do starts at the nervous system. Now, I'm not going to say every movement is, you know, pure nervous system power, because I think that's kind of undermining the physiological properties of the muscle itself, they work together. So neuro, meaning the nervous system, mechanical, meaning the structures which act upon, act in unison to perform movement itself. Taking that into consideration, when we, again, looking at these different studies that we see, whether it's sleep, um, whether, you know, possibly even nutrition, different types of stressors we have in the body, and that might compromise the way our nervous system is functioning, it's going to possibly compromise our motor patterns, our ability to be coupled, and eventually increase the risk of injury because we're not functioning in the optimal way. At the same time, an increase in risk of injury might also be associated with a decrease in performance because, again, we're not coupled in the proper way or the way we'd like to be coupled. So um, sum it all up, we are neuromechanically coupled. Our nervous system talks to our body. Our body talks back to our nervous system the way these things talk and influence and orchestrate movement is hugely important for how we perform. Understanding this and most importantly, appreciating this can allow you to select certain exercises, movement patterns, external stimuli that might challenge this neuromechanical coupling in a way that is more than just adding load or reducing load, right, in the sense of what we traditionally see in the weight room, but it can open up and broaden your horizons to think about it in a different way, especially in regards to what we call prehabilitation, avoiding the or avoiding the likelihood of injury. Adding these multiple dimensions and factors can help increase the robustness and resilience of that individual itself by ensuring, or at least making sure you're doing the best you can to keep intact the way the system should be neuromechanically coupled. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Take care and hope you guys enjoyed. What's up guys. Today we're diving into the topic of supra maximal eccentric exercises to, um, before we dive into the topic, we got to b- define what a supra maximal eccentric exercise is. So the eccentric portion of a movement is where the muscle fibers are lengthening under resistance. For example, if we're doing a you know a squat, the lowering portion, the quads, the fibers are lengthening. That's the eccentric portion. And so when we say supra maximal eccentrics, we're talking about a movement where no matter how much effort you put into it, the muscle is going to be forced to lengthen under resistance. This is very different than a traditional eccentric. Or a, sorry, a non-supermaximal eccentric. In a non-supermaximal eccentric, you are merely producing less force than needed to move the load. So if you take 25 pounds and you can curl 25 pounds just easy, right? If you raise it up for whatever concentrically portion, you know, one second, and you go down for three seconds. Well, you could theoretically produce enough force if you really had to to lift that weight back up. But when you lower it slowly, you're just producing less force than there would be needed to move that weight. So a supra maximal eccentric is when no matter how much effort you put into it, 
that weight is going to force your fibers to lengthen and they're essentially lengthening against their will. So if you've ever seen like a bailiff or a thing that, I don't know what the name of it is, like the thing that mushes, the thing that mushes cars. I don't know what that's called. Um, but basically, no matter what happens, the car is going to get mushed. Um, and it's going to be crushed by a constant force. This is similar to what uh, isokinetic testing is in the laboratory. This is also what a lot of eccentric studies are done, at least the previous one, the older ones used to be. And this is when, let's have a knee extension. For those of you watching the video, I'm doing a little hand motion with my knee extension. We go up concentrically, but then eccentrically, no matter how much we resist, right, that load, it pushes our leg down. So that's a supra maximal eccentric movement. Now, when we're not doing this in an isokinetic setting, where we can control the velocity and the load, sorry, the, and essentially the velocity, because load's always super maximal, duh. But the velocity, right, you can do it really slow and push the leg and force it into deeper flexion. You can do it fast and push the leg into deeper flexion. All of these are forms of super maximal eccentrics. Unfortunately, with a dumbbell, we typically don't have that same, um, it's, again, it's not isotonic. The, the actual, there's not a constant applied pressure there, um, that's going to be overcoming muscular force no matter what happens. And so what I mean by that is that in a dumbbell, it's typically like when you lower it, you're just producing less force. You're not getting overran. So if we're looking at a super maximal eccentric movement in, you know, the, in a weight room in a non-machine-based setting, we're looking at movements that force you to lengthen under tension without, <laughs> at a point where if you produce your maximal volitional effort, you still can't move it. So a maximal effort... And you still are lengthening. And so there's two ways to do that typically. The first way is with a load that is greater than you can lift concentrically. right? Essentially, it mushes you down to the ground and your muscles are lengthening, attempting to resist this load as it goes through a large range of motion. This is typically seen through different exercises um, where you might just lower it on the pins Take off some of the weight, stand back up with it, add the weight back down, lower it again. So it's more weight than you can concentrically lift. The other a, a kind of a version of this is where the velocity is so high that it requires your muscle to produce a lot of force rapidly. And there's a period now, it might not be the full range of motion, a short period of range of motion where that muscle is overloaded super maximally eccentrically. And it can't produce enough force instantaneously to reverse that um you know the course of action the, the the energy the velocity itself and so that's actually a in in essence a super maximal eccentric like a plyometric you hit the ground no matter how much force you produce there's so much kinetic energy going on from the fall and so much momentum that you're not producing enough force instantaneously so you're producing force as much as you can but it's still not enough to stop the limb from moving and so you have some eccentric like lengthening under maximal volitional effort of the muscle itself. And so obviously it doesn't occur for the whole range of motion because the instant you produce force when you start landing, um, let's say it takes 100, for this is an overly simplistic view of looking at this, let's say it takes um, 100 pounds of force to stop you to fall. But all you can do is produce 50 pounds of force every second. Unless, again, very simple and it's not technically super correct physics-wise, but we're going to use this as an example. When you fall, that you hit the ground, right? And it takes one second for you to produce 50 pounds of force. So when you produce 50 pounds of force, you have now reduced the load that's falling down to 50 pounds 
because it was 100 and you produce 50 against it, so 50 minus 100 is 50, and then we apply another 50, now it's zero, and you've stopped. So you've now produced enough force to stop your falling momentum. That right there, we're in that moment where um, essentially the, the force was less than the force, the force produced by the muscle was less than the force needed to stop the falling object, you have maximal eccentric lengthening. And so this is something that you see in plyometrics, something you see in these large uh, movements, that have, sorry, movements that have large velocities, large changes in kinetic energy, where you have essentially a point in time where the amount of muscular force that you're producing is less than that um, that is needed to you know, stop the movement or transition it to a concentric portion so that muscle's lengthening now under essentially a load, that being your body, that um, is super maximal to it. And so you have these super maximal heavy, heavy, heavy loads, and you have the super maximal induced from a free-falling object. And um, I, I don't, I haven't used, uh, I haven't dove in the literature deep enough to differentiate. I don't know if the literature even does differentiate well enough between the two, but it's an interesting concept to look at from a super maximal standpoint. Obviously, there's large benefits uh, for super maximal, maximal eccentrics, um, or eccentrics in general, whether it's fascicle lengthening through this range of motion. Um, it has to do with uh, a lot of structural um, changes as well. But again, there's two different kinds. There's that load-based super maximal, but then there's also, again, it's load technically, but it's like momentum almost, right? Where it's the mass falling from, say, a, a box, and your body's the mass, and now you need to produce X amount of muscular force to stop this body before it mushes into the ground. But you produce that force not necessarily fast enough, so the moment in time where it becomes maximal eccentric. Right, and so that's like the difference between a depth jump when you jump off a big box and take a larger range of motion to stop the falling object. Um, so, good question or good topic. The difference between those two super maximal eccentrics, and um, I think there is a uh, not always talked about is the higher velocity version because that is what takes place if you look at it from a pure mathematical standpoint of how much force can I produce instantaneously regarding the amount of force needed to stop my falling object if my force I can produce instantaneously, instantaneously under maximal volitional effort is not enough, then I'm going to have some length in the muscle fibers itself. Um, awesome, guys. Appreciate you listening, and take care.